Well, I just want you to know that as we come on Sunday mornings here, that we really do pray and ask the Holy Spirit to have his way. Yeah, we're prepared to do certain things, but, you know, we're always prepared also just to let the Holy Spirit speak and do what he would have to do. And, um, and I encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through you. If you have a word at any time, uh, or something that you feel you want to share, talk to me about it. And uh, come up to me, talk to me, and, and uh, if the Lord will talk through all of us, including you, because you're very valuable to this body. Amen. So this morning, I want to speak more about what the Holy Spirit's doing for us. Last week, we spoke on the power of the Holy Spirit in regards to justification and sanctification, the act of justification and the process of sanctification. And it was my thought that we would move on after this and start speaking about the Holy Spirit as a giver of wisdom and uh, start to talk about some of the gifts the Holy Spirit gives us. But it became evident in my prayer time and my study time over the week that the Holy Spirit has more to talk about when it comes to being set apart. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to be set apart in the area of justification and sanctification. But what does it really mean to be set apart? I think that there are some things here that we, we can learn yet and glean. The main role of the Holy Spirit, as we talked about last week, is to uh, lead us to Jesus and to make us more Christ-like. That really is why he's here. That's when Jesus left this earth and he ascended to heaven, he promised his followers, his disciples, that he would send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would be a paraclete or a guide or a comforter uh, to, uh, to those and to us. And uh, he is different than Jesus in the fact that he is a spirit form of God, meaning that he can be in all places at all times. Where Jesus was limited because of his manhood, he was limited to be in one place, just like you and I are limited. But the Holy Spirit is not. And that's why the Holy Spirit is so powerful today and so important in this world today because the Holy Spirit can be all places at all times. And so his major role, though, is to agree with what everything Jesus had begun to establish and to take it to the next level. So he is, his role is to lead us to Jesus. And then Jesus leads us to the Father and in that process, we all become more like Christ. That's the process. But this requires, though, a setting apart on our end, on our, our piece of the puzzle here, our piece of the equation, or our responsibility here is to allow ourselves and to seek the power of the Holy Spirit to set us apart from the things of this world or anything that would hinder our relationship with Jesus. There are things that happen in this world that would hinder our ability or our desire to be like Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Does anybody know, has anybody sensed a hindrance in their spirit this, pe this week? Probably yes. I think we all understand that the enemy is there to bring a hindrance, and our flesh can be that biggest hindrance. So today I want to talk about what does it really look like and what does it mean to be set apart for the pleasure of God and to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in us that would make us more Christ-like. I was impressed this week that we need to recognize truly how much God loves us. God really loves 
each and every one of us. Jesus loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you. The Father loves you. They all love us. And the Holy Spirit is here to prove to us God's love, their love for us. And he's done it through the fact that they wrote a very good instruction manual for how to live in this world. And because they love us so much, and they wrote that manual to us called the Bible, that they now want to help us to understand it and help us to to apply it in our life. You know, God is not a deist, meaning that he just didn't create the world, create us, wind the old atomic clock and then of our life and then send us out into the universe to live on our own and then he'd come back and see us at the end of a life and say, hey, how'd you guys do? That's not God's plan at all. God is a theist, meaning that he created us, but he doesn't leave us. He is here with us. The Holy Spirit is here with us to help us and he's given us many truths in his word and um, those truths are the things that set us free. And we need to learn those truths. And I think that the Lord is, is hurt and disappointed many times because many people will start on the path, start on the journey of being a follower of Christ, but through the work of their own flesh and maybe the enemy, clearly the enemy has a role in his, they get distracted and they get taken off course because they don't stick to the truth of God's word and they get caught up in all kinds of false beliefs and many hindrances that would take them away from the truth of God's word. And the enemy is very subtle here. The enemy is very um, very sly in how he brings to us various levels of false truths, truths that have enough information, enough good in them, but yet fall short of the full truth. And so therefore, um, we get caught up in hollow philosophies and things that just are not, just not constructive into our, our, our life. Paul was concerned about this because even in their day, Paul had instructions. He gave instructions to the people of, the, of, the, uh, of their day. He talked in the book of Colossians. And he says this beginning in chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. He says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. In other words, a strong foundation strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So the enemy subtly and slyly is working in our lives, trying to take us off the track, trying to get us off the road of God's truth. And he gives us just enough truth in the lies that it looks good, and he entices it, and he sucks us in. For those that are not grounded in God's word, it's hard to know the difference between truth and deception. And that's the problem for many of us in our church world today, that many of us don't understand God's word. We're not studying God's word enough to know what's true. And so the enemy brings lots of good-sounding ideas, a lot of good-sounding teaching going on, and it sounds great. It sounds like good prosperity, good things, and God wants us to be happy, and he wants us to be a fulfilled life, and all those things, and it's all true, but he doesn't tell you the details of how to get to that level of happiness and how to get to that level of prosperity and what is that level of prosperity, and, and there's the truth of God's word. And so Paul 
was very concerned about that, and he talked to his, he had a spiritual son named Timothy. He said, he said this to Timothy in the area of how to train and live a holy life. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip to 6 and 8, it says this. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, which is today, <laughs> later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. I think we all know what that's like. You know how your conscience can get seared. If you do the wrong thing enough times, you, the guilt leaves, and all of a sudden you are confused as to what's really true and what's not true. Then in verse 6, he says, But if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless, godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Big words there. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So as we continue to speak about the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives, that we have to understand that it's God's intention that we follow his teachings. He gives us great detail. He gives us great instruction. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to educate us, teach us how to be godly. We're to learn how to be godly. I, I wonder, for many people, for most people that got saved, and that moment of salvation, did the pastor, the teacher, the person that led you to Jesus, did they give you any indicator that from there on you're going to have to work hard? <laughs> did anybody ever come and tell you that, yes, you're on the right path, but now there's work to do? I, I think that's the problem. I think we make salvation such an easy thing. It's just get saved and life is going to be grand. Life is going to be good. But let me say this, it's true, but it's not going to happen automatically. You have to learn how to make yourself, you have to learn to train yourself to be godly, just as Paul is talking to Timothy here. This is part, this is the setting apart process. This is the part of the sanctifying work of God, which is really meaning setting, setting apart from the things of this world. The challenge that we have is, will we do it? Will we allow ourselves to be set apart? Will we take the right effort? Will we make the right steps? Will we put the effort in to setting apart? Because I will say that it, the, it's, more e it's easier and more people do it. They get saved. They get started on the right path. But as soon as the adversity comes of the world against them, they back off and they say, oh, that's too hard. I can't handle that. I tried it once, it didn't work for me, so now I'm done. Or else they find a version of Christianity that is easy, that doesn't really listen to God's word, and they'll take variations of it, they'll cherry-pick the word, and they'll take verses out of context to say what they want it to say to take the pressure off them to have to live a holy life. Now, I just want to pause here for a minute, and I want to pray. And I want to pray that the Lord helps us to see God's word for what it really says. Would you close your eyes? Would you pray with me? Father, as we begin and as we continue in this little study, I pray, Father, that you would just open our eyes to what this really means. Help us not to just give it a nod and a head approval and just move on, but help us to truly understand what it means to read your word, 
to understand it and then to begin to apply it. So I pray, Father, that right now that you just give us the strength, you give us the insight, give us the wisdom, then you give us the wherewithal to get it done. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said last week, we talked about, in great detail actually, uh, what it means to be justified through the act of repentance. And then the justification comes through God's grace and mercy, which is totally undeserved. We have no credit. We can take no credit in the act of justification because it's God's grace, it's his mercy that says, I forgive you. I release you of the debt. Jesus paid the price of your sin. The blood of Jesus covers the the sin that you had in your life that would have been death for you. The only way you could have paid that price is to die. But Jesus paid it for you. He died for you. So because of that, because of that fact, when we come before him with a repentant heart, a heart that says, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? He says, yes, I will forgive you. And he justifies us. That's a beautiful act. It's a beautiful a moment in our life where we are free. And then we move into a process thereafter called living, <laughs> called sanctification, called a setting apart, which is an ongoing and a continual effort to set ourselves apart from the world. In Hebrews it says that we, will, that we are to be free from the, anything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles that we would run the race marked out for us with perseverance. So the writer of Hebrews sees that justification moment where we're free, we're set apart, but then there are things that would hinder and the sin. See, many of the things that would hinder us aren't even sinful things. They're just life, just the distractions of life that would get into our life that would hinder us. Clearly, the sinful things will hinder you too, but... It's not just the sinful things. We have to set ourselves apart from anything that would distract us. Now, just, or sanctification, setting apart, is, is very similar to justification in that it is nothing that we can do on our own. I can't live a sanctified life on my own. I must have the power of the Holy Spirit in me. I can't do it. I can try to be a good guy. And by nature, some people are better than others. I get that. But no one is good enough on their own to be sanctified. That's why we need to have the Holy Spirit in our life. That's why when I accept Jesus as my Savior, he comes and lives in me. The moment of salvation, the moment of justification, the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in my life, takes residence in your life. And at that point in time, he begins to help you to set yourself apart from the rest of the world. There's more acts of the Holy Spirit that come after that as well, which we're going to talk about later when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the other gifts that he gives us. But rest assured that when you ask Jesus into your heart, the Holy Spirit is there. You're not alone, and you'll never be alone again as long as you keep yourself in a position of inviting him in. You have to keep inviting him. He's a gentle spirit, and he's not going to invade where he's not wanted. He will woo you and he will take you to task and he'll bring all kinds of convictions to us. Thank the Lord that he does. But it's only when I accept that conviction and I invite him in will he actually be able to do the work that he needs to do. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so now what does it really mean and what does it really look like to be set apart for God's purposes? The concept of separation from evil, from all that contradicts us, 
Everything that contradicts and opposes God's, and God's character, his standards and his purposes, because God has very high standards. He has very set purposes. That is fundamental to God's relationship with his people. God is holy. And if we're going to have a relationship with him, we have to be at his level of holiness. We'll talk about that a little bit more, how we get there. But God is not going to reduce his standards to come down to our level of living. Our standards are going to have to rise up to his level of living. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So according to the Bible, this setting apart process involves two dimensions. One's negative, relating to the things that we're told not to do. And the other is positive in talking about the things that we are to do and the things we must seek after. So I want to talk about these aspects today. I want to talk about the negative aspects, which isn't really negative. I mean, I don't know what other, didn't know what other term to use. There's a negative and there's a positive. But the negative, all it's really saying is that we are to avoid some things in life that doesn't make us, it, it can, if it's not carefully guarded, it can turn into a very legalistic lifestyle. And that's what, I, what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about that we just have a religious mindset, that we're just legalistic. When I set myself apart from doing things that are wrong in this life, it's based upon a conviction that the Holy Spirit gives me. And the difference between legalism and conviction is education. Why, do, why don't I do those things? If I, do, if I don't do them just because it gives me a look of righteousness, if, it, if I don't do it because it's just uh, I was told not to do it and I don't understand why I don't do it, that's down the road of legalism. And that's very dangerous and it hurts a lot of people. But when I have a conviction of the Holy Spirit as to why I don't do some things, now all of a sudden that conviction is leading us to truth and the Bible says truth sets us free. And now I can live in life avoiding some traps that, would have, that were set for me if I would have gone down that path. The enemy will trap me there because he's your friend in the moment. But as soon as you've done it, what does he do to you? He turns around and he says, oh, I got you now. As soon as you do what he's told you to do, convinced you to do in what he said a good way, boy, then comes condemnation. And condemnation is not a friendly thing. Condemnation comes and says, you're a loser. <laughs> Guess what, buddy? You've lost, and you're a loser, and I've got you now, and there is no hope for you. And when you start getting down that path of, of condemnation, you start walking down that path, it's not a friendly path. Anybody been on it besides me? Just me. <laughs> I'm the only one. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. I appreciate your support. <laughs> you know, I love, I love honesty. And humor, yeah. I love humor, too. But, boy, when, when, you, start, when you start dealing with condemnation, those are the things that wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep because the enemy is just relentlessly pounding, 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 pounding. And that's where fear comes from. And the beautiful thing about the grace of God and about the justification nature of God is that you have to remind the devil. What I, what I have to do for myself and what I would advise for you, if you find yourself in a state of condemnation because you've sinned, don't argue with the devil. Don't try to justify yourself. What you do is you say, you know, right, you're right. I did sin. You got me. But I also asked Jesus to forgive me. 
And because he's forgiven me now, the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So you don't argue with the devil. You don't justify yourself and say, yeah, I did it, but I didn't mean to do it, and a lot of that. Because you start going down that path, and he'll win. I guarantee you, he'll win that battle. You can't justify yourself away from him. But when you say, yep, I was a sinner, devil. You got me there, but you know what? Jesus died for that sin. And now I have applied the blood of Christ on my life, and therefore there is no condemnation. So devil, get out. Flee. Leave me alone. And when you pray that way, when you pray that way, there will be a sense of peace that will come into the room, and all of a sudden you'll be able to go to sleep. And you'll be able to have peace in your heart because it's not your self-righteousness that you're battling for anymore. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us and now we're applying his righteousness. And when God looks at me justified, it it is if I have never sinned and the devil doesn't like that. So therefore he brings condemnation. Don't accept that. Reject it in the name of Jesus because you're, no, you're not condemned any longer. You're a child of God. And live in that and and walk in that. The devil brings a bunch of lies. He twists the truths of God's word and he actually uses to hurt it, to hurt us. He hurts our relationship because he takes God's word and he twists it just enough that it looks good in the moment. It may sound good because it feels good, but there's no truth there. There's a lie into it. The devil says, that God loves you. Here, there's some, here's one of the lies I think the enemy gives to, most, to a lot of people. After they're saved, because the devil will come in after you're saved, and he'll say, yeah, God accepted you as you were. But here's the thing. There's no way you can be holy. There's no way you can be holy. So therefore, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just live your life the way you want to live your life, because God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is what forgave you in the first place, so God will forgive you again. So don't worry about it. Just live your life, enjoy life. God made you with the desires that you have. He wants you to be happy. Especially those, I mean, there is such a battle going on right now in this world over our sexuality, over our gender preferences, the fact that I want to have a relationship with another man or a girl with a girl. And because God created that way, he created that image, he must want me to enjoy it. Why would God create me with a desire if he didn't want me to fulfill it? You see, the devil is right there giving all kinds of justifications that God really wants to make you happy. The Holy Spirit here is here to make you happy. You're to have a happy life, so he wouldn't ask you to do anything contrary to your flesh, would he? It's like, it's like the, simple, the, the question that Satan asked Eve. God didn't really mean it. Did he really say? That's the biggest lie right there, because once we start going down that path of, did God really say? The answer is, yes, he really said it. So believe it. (laughs) Don't start playing games. Don't argue with the enemy in that way, and don't allow yourself to get sucked into his little little rounds that will go nowhere in his arguments. The enemy's logic continues to convince men that because we have one time have had a relationship with God, that we're saved forever, no matter how I live. Well, that's not biblical. We need to go back and and read God's word. And if we read God's word, then we can start saying things like this to ourselves. Yes, God loves me so much. And he accepts me just the way I am. But the beautiful part is he loves me so much he doesn't want to leave me there. He doesn't want to leave me in the mess that I am. So the Holy Spirit comes and he says, okay, let's do some work. And I'm going to help you. 
I'm going to bring some conviction into your life. I'm going to say, you don't do that, you don't do that, you don't do that. Now, I'm not legalistic. I'm just helping you out here a little bit, guys. That's what the Holy Spirit's saying. I'm just trying to lead you into a life that brings truth, and truth brings freedom, and freedom brings, brings good relationship with the Lord. And so now he's going to keep us from doing the things that, that are going to hurt us, and he's going to give us that sense of being a true son or a true daughter of the Most High. And when I have that relationship with God that way, there's a lot of peace there. There's a lot of fulfillment there. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 5 through 7, the writer says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? So here's my admonition. So get ready to be treated like a son of God. Get ready to be treated like a child of God. Get ready to be treated like a daughter of God. And what that means is that he loves you so much he's going to discipline you. He loves you so much he's going to spank you. Does that sound fun? Was it fun getting spanked by your dad? No. I used to have a lot of races around my dad trying to beat the belt. <laughs> belt always caught up. <laughs> but I, yet my dad would tell me quite often, he said, Mike, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I'd say, I don't get it, Dad. It hurts me an awful lot. But I have to say, though, that as I grew up to be a dad and I had to spank my children, it really did hurt me more than it hurt them. It's hard to discipline your children, isn't it? It's hard to. And, you know, here's a, here's a great litmus test for you. If Maybe you're not disciplining children anymore, but maybe you're having to speak truth into your brother, sister or sister in Christ, because that's our responsibility, by the way. Do you know that? That if I'm going to be a brother and sister with you and you're going to be a brother and sister of mine, that you need to speak truth into my life? I need to hear the truth. You need to hear the truth. If, if the Lord gives you a hard word... Maybe he lays something in your heart that maybe he's, through, the, through a gift of the Holy Spirit called the gift of wisdom and discernment and knowledge, he gives you a word about a brother or a sister or you've observed a sinful behavior. And maybe you need to go to that brother and sister and talk to them about it. If it doesn't hurt you to say it, don't say it. If it doesn't hurt you to speak truth into your brother's life, then don't say it. Because you can discipline a child out of anger. And that anger is not, it doesn't hurt you when you're angry. It just feels good because he's getting, it, he's getting his due process, right? And sometimes you might have a word for your brother or sister and there's no angst in your life and how you say it. It just feels good to say it because it felt good to get it off your chest. Don't say it. Because then you're saying things of the flesh. But if it hurts you to say it, then the Lord is giving you, he's positioned you in a place to be a part of his righteous discipline because it hurts the discipline. It doesn't make God feel good. It doesn't make God, God's not a big God with a hammer up there that's just looking for you to screw up so he can hit you in the head. No, I'm sure it hurts him greatly when he has to allow things in your life to happen to get your attention. 
Because sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes we're so wayward, we're so bullheaded, we're so stubborn that we're not getting it. So he says, I love you so much. Do you understand how much you love you? I'm going to allow this to happen to you. And I'm hoping, I'm praying that you're going to look up to me when it happens. And when that happens, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Anything that turns your eyes to Christ, I define that as a blessing. So there are some negative things we're supposed to do. And again, I've already described the negative is really not a negative because it turns out to be a positive because it's leading me more towards Christ. But it's only negative because I'm, it's focusing on the things that we're not supposed to do. <laughs> okay? So we must deliberately and intentionally set ourselves apart from the things that are morally wrong in this world. And those things spiritually separate us from God. And in order for us to have a relationship to God, we must be holy. As it says that in Leviticus 9, 1 through 2, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, the entire assembly, not just to the special people, tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, the New Testament says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I'm holy. Now, the argument might come to your mind to say, I can't be holy. Uh, I can't do it on my own. And I would say, you're right, you can't be. Neither can I be on my own. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to have the Holy Spirit in our life, because it's through his power, his authority, we can be holy. Otherwise, if God is saying something you can't be, then why would he say it? It doesn't make any sense. If God says be holy, he's saying be holy because I can make you holy if you'll allow me. And that's the process. So our responsibility there is to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and invite him in to say, okay, I'm going to take you up on it. I want to be holy because I want to have a relationship with the Father. So Holy Spirit, help me be holy. Help me to say no to the things that I need to say no to. Help me to be able to resist those temptations. Help me to know that just because I have a desire doesn't mean I need to fulfill it. Give me a level of discipline in my life to know when to say no. When to push, it, when to push the plate away. <laughs> when to say I've had enough to eat, thank you. And when to flee from things that are wrong like sexual sin. The Bible doesn't say manage it. Nowhere in the Bible does it say manage your sin. It says kill it. Put it to death. Crucify your flesh. It doesn't say manage it. It doesn't say you can manage a little bit and just don't go too far. Because once you start down that path, it's slippery. Especially sexual sin. It says flee it. Wow. That's how it is to be holy. And that's what the power of the Holy Spirit is to do that. So now that we're on that path, now where do we go? Romans, Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 2, it says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? See, Paul was dealing with people that were no different than you and I today. Throughout much of this chapter, chapter 6 of Romans, Paul is challenging the faulty notion that believers may continue to live in sin, yet still remain secure and guilt-free with their relationship with the Lord. It doesn't make any difference when we lived. We could have lived in a new church era or we can live right now in 2020. Time has no bearing on our need for grace, nor does it have any bearing on God's truth. 
people then and people today are still misapplying the grace of God to imply that once they're saved from their sin, in other words, once they're justified by grace and mercy that God gives, that God will somehow allow them to continue to live in that same sin that they were saved from, and somehow God's going to be okay with that. See, it doesn't make any sense when we say it that clearly. But yet the enemy comes and he twists it all around and there are many people today that are living that way. If they're not, then why would the Bible say that the wide road, the broad road, most people are on it that leads to destruction? Whereas the narrow gate and the narrow road that leads to eternal life and only a few are on that. So the enemy is very good at making it appear that, oh, we're doing good, we're, going to, we're on the great road. Look at, all the, look at all the other people are on the same road that we're on. We must be doing good because no, not everybody else would be thinking well, we're, we're, the way we're thinking, so we're justifying. We're, we're looking at somebody else's life and we're comparing our life to them, thinking I'm a little better than they are, so I must be all right, rather than looking to the Word of God. Because if I keep my standard, the Word of God, then I don't have that, that room to get off that narrow road. And that's where we have to live. Are we, am I making sense? Okay, thanks. Sometimes I need to make sure that I'm not getting myself twisted up here in some theology. But sometimes it's just good to wake you up because you're daydreaming. So everybody daydreaming here? Anybody following me here? Huh? Okay, as long as we're on the same path, I just want to make sure because the enemy can deceive us in church, too. He has the ability to put us asleep, especially when it starts to get talking about personal issues. Paul and all the writers of the Bible make it perfectly, perfectly clear that the act of justification is something very important for us, but it proves to us the fact that we can be justified. It proves to us that, that we, can, we can be with right, we can be in a right relationship with God, but, you know, I, I, when I look at Romans chapter 6, I, in fact, I encourage you to go home and read it this, this afternoon. But I would think right now that Paul has said enough, right? He's already said all he needs to say. But we look at verse chapter 6 and verse 7 and continue on, and, and he keeps at it. So there must be more. He, the people, we, they must have been dull thinkers because Paul continues to press the point. Because let's read verses 6 and 7 of Romans chapter 6. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That's the power of justification. But then he goes on again further in verses 6 and 11, or I mean, uh, go down to 11 and 13. He says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought, brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Paul just keeps driving the point home, doesn't he? That we need to recognize that it's our responsibility to continue to pursue the life of being set apart. People can be stiff-necked at times. But God knows us, and he knows how patient he has to be with us because it's his plan that we not just survive but thrive in this world. So then he goes on more again. He goes on even more in verse 15 and 16. He says, What then? 
Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Rather, you are slaves to sin. Whether you are slaves of sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So what Paul is saying here is that we are to continually to affirm and reaffirm our, our decision to accept Christ as our Savior and to live that way. What he's saying is, guys, no matter what the enemy says, we are to resist the temptation to slippery slide into, into compromise. The choice remains ours as long as we live. Who are we going to obey? It's our choice. Who are we going to obey, even, even after accepting Christ, that we will have to repeatedly choose to resist sin? Now, how do we do this? Paul talks in the, in the Corinthians. He talks to um, us about setting ourselves apart from things that we shouldn't be hooked up with. A long passage here. Chad, I'm going to ask you to read it because I'm talking, again, too much. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a part with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch your fil- their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What he's not saying here is that we are to avoid living in the world. We can't avoid living in the world. We can just avoid who we team up with in the world. We can avoid, we can avoid who do we get emotionally tied to in the world. Obviously, this is a great verse to be used for people that are dating, choosing a spouse. But it's also good advice for the business partners that you deal with. Whatever level of person you get involved with emotionally, be careful because that relationship, you can lead them to Christ and they can lead you away from Christ too. So just be careful. We have to be careful that we allow ourselves to be positive role models but yet not get sucked in to where their influence impacts us. So let's move on a little bit more to the positive aspect. What are we supposed to be setting our lives apart to do um, so that we can purposely pursue the relationship with the Lord? On the positive side, our process is to purposely pursue a deeper and closer relationship with God. How do we do that? Well, you pray. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in Bible reading. Spend time in studying God's Word. Spend time with other believers. I don't think we do this enough, guys. I think we we shortcut ourselves here because we don't spend time with each other. We're in such a compartmentalized world today. I do my thing, you do your thing, and uh, we'll see on Sunday morning. That's about it. But spend time, fellowship with people. Get into Bible studies. Come out and be part of the things that we are, the formal training that we do. Be a part of it. But at the same time, there's other things you can do to continue to train yourself as well. Have coffee with a brother. Pray with people. The more we focus on the things that are positive, the better it's going to be for us when it comes to the negative. The more I get my life with Christ, the, more, the closer I'm living with Jesus, 
then it's easier for me to avoid the negative. So I don't have to fight so hard because I'm so focused on Christ, my focus is on him, that now the negative just kind of goes away. It really helps me the more I focus on Christ. Our attitude toward sin should change. We should start to see ourselves truly being convicted and loving what God loves and hating what God hates. We need to see, that God, we need to see life more the, more the way God sees it. Billy Graham said this in one of his many sermons. He said, We in the church have failed to remind this generation that while God is love, he also has the capacity to hate. He hates sin, and he will judge it with the fierceness of his wrath. This generation is schooled in the teaching about an indulgent, soft-hearted God whose judgments are uncertain and who coddles those who break his commandments. This generation finds it difficult to believe that God hates sin. We need to learn to hate what God hates. What does God hate? Proverbs chapter 6, 16 and 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Do we see ourselves in any of that? Those are the things that God hates. We need to see how our actions impact our relationship with God. And the more I live by godly convictions, the more I live with this Holy Spirit leading me in the, in the, in the good things, the less I'm going to do the bad things. The last thing I want to talk about, about the thing, loving the things that God loves. God wants us to love people. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Here, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So what that means is that if I'm loving God, and if I'm loving you, people are going to see God through me. You may be the only Jesus people see. You may be the only Bible people read by the way you act and by the way you treat them. Now, how do we love people? Man, I'm telling you what, guys, this is the hardest part. There is so much more to talk about than what we can talk about on a Sunday morning when it comes to God's love and how do we share it and how do we, and how do we live it out. Um, and that's why I want to have this Bible study on Wednesday nights. So we're going to do this video series, and I want to run a little clip for you on what it's about. It's Dr. Les Parrott, and it's titled Love Like That. Love like that. And so we're going we're gonna to do that on Wednesday nights, and I would really encourage you to come out and be a part of this because it's going to help us for the next six weeks learning how to love the way Jesus loves. Because if I truly want to be set apart from this world, what's going to set me apart is love. Not my judgment, not my critical nature, not my cynicism, because I can be cynical and I can be very judgmental, but what's going to set me apart from anybody else in the world is God's love. When I can learn to love you like Jesus loves you and love other people, and not just the people that I like, but all people, when I can learn to love like that, we're on to something. That's being set apart. Larry, run that little video trailer, would you please? The greatest challenge Jesus ever gave any of us was to love like he did. How? How in the world are you supposed to love like that? The bar is set so high, right? Uh, and I've been on a quest to discover how can I get anywhere closer in practical terms to loving like Jesus. 
So often I would be focused on what can I accomplish, what can I get, what can I earn. It started to reveal to me all these different things about even my own friends and how I wouldn't focus on anything that they had going on. I really asked the Lord to give me spiritual insight because I wanted to be able to see from His eyes and not from mine. You know, what you did was devastating to me. However, God loves you so much and I love you so much. I never felt grace from anyone in my family or anyone else for that matter and so it was hard for me to give grace. I believe God doesn't waste a hurt and that He can use all things for good and so I know God's in it. Ultimately, loving like Jesus, loving at this incredibly high level is an internal quest. It's not so much about doing as it is about being. If you want to love like Jesus, you can't limit your love to people who deserve it. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. And that's my prayer for you and for me, that every day we would love more and more like that. So there's six weeks here. There's, uh, we'll get, easily get this done in an hour, um, probably a little bit less. But I think this is some really good lessons, practical lessons, and he gives, he, this is a, a really good study, so I encourage you to be a part of it. But as we finish tonight, I just want to pray for you, and I just want to pray for us that we would understand better what it means to be set apart. It's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It's, it is a hard thing. I will tell you it's going to take a lot of your effort, but there's going to be a great reward at the end of the day. So I encourage you to do it. I encourage you to step in and do it, and don't be lazy in it. Don't let the level beat you up in it. Don't let him take you down the path of easiness and say, oh, it's not worth it, because it is worth it, but you got to do it. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. And we just ask you to give us your wisdom and give us your heart. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this process of being set apart. We invite you to come in and, and help us to do the things. We, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. We're not dumb people, but we're weak people. The flesh is weak. The spirit is strong, but the flesh is weak. And so many times we, we fall to it just because we don't have enough strength on our own. So Holy Spirit, I'm inviting you in to my life and I'm inviting you into the life of this church that you would strengthen us, that truly we would have your grace, your understanding and your purpose and your power to conquer this thing called temptation. Help us to live and help us to love like you loved and how you lived. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed today. We'll see you all Wednesday night, all right?